1: about to listen to our new show the groundsman conversations which is brought to you by sports Digital. sports Digital is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders agencies and brands that brings your story to life within immersive exciting easy to create proposals and presentations used by more than 50 percent of teams in the top leagues in the u.s sports Digita's technology enables partners to ditch powerpoint and keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting Cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo.
2: Welcome everybody to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? The Groundsman? Brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at Sports Digital. Uh, It's great to see them doing so well and um, fingers crossed that that will continue next year. Uh, Good news on that and and more to come in the coming weeks as we finalise that. Uh, great to see the captain, Giles Morgan, with me. How are you, Giles? Well, I'm good. I'm in the middle of uh, of sort of, um,
1: you know this, but I, I'm getting married in December. So my life has been taken up by making decisions I didn't think I'd be making in my 50s. So it's been uh, quite entertaining. So really. you actually
2: uh, believe you're making any decisions as opposed <laughs> to your wife? She <laughs> just lets you think that, Giles, you are making zero decisions. It's,
1: it's <laughs> a fair, did I not learn anything before? But exactly. <laughs> oh, you I'm would doomed. have not at this point. <laughs> so yeah, it's um it's been good, but I um I rarely just recently have been watching that much sport just because of stuff going on and we're all busy and uh, but I did catch some rugby over the weekend and watched uh, Scotland narrowly losing to Australia in a very close game. And it really reminded me how much I bloody love Rugby Union. I know I'm a public school twat and all the rest of it, but just watching an old-fashioned international between the northern and Southern Hemisphere, but listening to the atmosphere at Murrayfield, which is very special to me in my very, very early career, I ran the sponsorship for Famous Grouse Whiskey and, and looked after the Scotland rugby team, which was just so much fun, particularly being the guy who... Basically, my job was to drive around Edinburgh with cases of whiskey and hand them out at nightclubs um, so that you could get VIP treatment for for players. It was uh, a fantastic job in a, in, a, in a former era. But I mean, good I mean, good heart, Rog. Sorry, that was a good. long answer to a short no, question. No,
2: good, good. Um, yeah, Grant isn't with us again. Uh, and, and I like to shout out reasons when they're like this reason. Grant is um, staying beside one of his friends who is not very well just now. So shout out to Kim. Um, And um, we're pleased that Grant has taken the time to actually stay uh, with his mate. Uh, So you and I will will push on, Uh, um, Giles, with the second episode of the one that we flagged last week around racket sports. Um, I'll let you introduce the guest um, shortly. But before we do that, um, I want to ask you a couple of things that I have come across, quite strongly actually come across my desk uh, in the last couple of days. Uh, and the one I'm referring to that I would love your opinion on, uh, Giles, is this one. This was an article sent to me by somebody um, that then it was one of those articles that's got, you know, a summary of the key points at the top. I always like articles like that. In in my executive um coaching world, it's called Bluff Bottom Line Up Front so the the bluff for this article has got three points hancock Pro- prospecting has signed had signed a deal with netball Australia to provide fifteen million dollars in sponsorship funding Point two the deal which was set to go it uh, was set to go to two thousand and twenty five was met with objections from some members of the netball diamonds team the athletes that is. Netball Australia is currently in debt by about $7 million as those same players look for wage increases. And I just thought to myself, you know that phrase, um, you can't have everything in life. Uh, I just feel we're getting into a moment now where there are some people, um, I think they're very well-meaning. I've got a lot of time for for younger generations that get more... Uh, search for for the for 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 values in life but i, I do think that they their their youth also comes with inexperience. experience and th- in this case we have got a sport i wouldn't say it's a frontline sport netball australia that is 7 million in debt which is a significant amount of debt you've got the women players agitating for equal pay because that is Often not an economic argument; it's more of a, a culture war argument, and they have the luck to have Hancock prospecting offering them an extension to the sponsorship, and I think they object because it's a mining company and things like that. And, and I'm just thinking whether it's this or whether it's betting or or or, or Middle Eastern money. Uh, or, or, i mean are, are we risking shooting ourselves in the foot here giles by not understanding that we're in a difficult moment and that the main thing principles are extremely expensive in life
1: yeah it's so difficult this one and trying to peel this one open and, and chatting as you and i have been doing pre-show it's it's really tricky and i have some I have a lot of sympathy with a lot of the viewpoints of people who want to take a moral stance on something, whether it be something about like mining or whether it be I see AIA insurance um, yes. uh, uh, and Tottenham Hotspur are getting a, a bit of a hard time from certain British establishment figures for their um, sort of cozying up to, to China. Um, I had it a lot at HSBC, funnily enough, um, in my time there. People love to take a shot at, at, at a big giant anyway, HSBC is truly a global company and there were issues in Mexico, as people know, 10 years ago, of which HSBC paid a very heavy price uh, with the Deferred Prosecution Agreement that has just ended um, a couple of years ago. Um, but there was always sort of some morally sincere people um, that made it quite tricky and that has some positive effects and some uh, and some negative effects. So, uh, a strong, a good example of a pressure group uh, putting um, pressure on was that HSBC were a sponsor of the Open Golf Championship, or still are, and a very successful one. But none of the open courses at that time allowed women. Members on those courses, and 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 the Open Championship is like the World Championship of golf, or was until Live came along. I think it probably still is. Still too. is. <laughs> yeah, and still is. A, a very vocal um, minority said, and this happened within the bank as well, saying, "Surely HSBC, as a global sponsor of golf, should not be endorsing this." And I took this to heart, and you'll know the story, Roger. We 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 got it changed in the RNA moved with the times. And now all of those courses on the open rotor are, are for both men and women. That's a good example of it. But your point, and I, I find this very confusing, is Netball Australia, which is the exemplar you've given. This is cash strapped This is not a primary sport. And this is a sport that um, relies on sponsorship income for its very survival. Now, whether you agree with that or not is a moot point. You could play for free as well if you wanted. But You've got this balance of people wanting to be paid, in this case, sort of fairly, in terms of from a from a from a gender perspective, but also just a survival point of view. To find a sponsor, a corporate sponsor, at any rights holder who's listening to to this show will agree at this point is one of the hardest things to do. It is painstaking to find the right fit to write to find people who prepared to write a check, particularly in a world that is still quite nebulous about what the return on investment is. And for players and fans, in in, in other examples, to take a kind of morally censorious viewpoint because it, it, it fits their own current agenda, means you probably are biting off your nose to spite your face. And I don't know, Hancock, so I can't go into detail about what they have or haven't done. But I think sport right now doesn't need... Um, sponsors being held out to, to to account unless it's something that's very, very obvious and that can be changed, etc. And, and I don't think on this occasion, um, on the two examples we've been given, you can really, can't really change that much about this situation. AIA is a global insurance firm. They sponsor Tottenham Hotspur. They've been doing it for years and years and years and been supporting the club and therefore the fans' passions for years good on them but you're never going to keep people happy all of the time but if sponsorship starts getting into this sort of judge jury and executioner place there'll be some there'll be very few sponsors left and (laughs) and that 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 can only be bad for sport we rely on sponsorship income like we do television is going through a tough time as we know there's some announcements of Comcast about their valuation i saw Mm -hmm. um, early today with, with with germany and italy so you're probably going to see rights fees beginning to uh, come down a bit. Therefore, the income model for for rights holders is looking um, quite tough at the moment. Ticketing will be, I imagine, challenged as well if we're going into a global slowdown and people are going to, with their with the income that they have, they're going to make decisions on their own ticketing and attendance. So suddenly the downturn looks even more protracted. So... I think for fans, all I would say for the younger generation, because I suspect a lot of this is, is be, be careful before you protest too much.
2: Yeah, I think that is a great way to put it. You know, um, let's let's expand it out a little bit. I'll try and take the position that Grant would take if he was here. You know, the, the, the other example I saw was Pat Cummins of Cricket Australia um, complaining a little bit, I think, about an energy company. And, you know, if you put that in the context of, you know, young kids all over the world, you know, throwing soup over uh, uh, paintings and a lot of it is complaining about um, the climate or, you know, energy sources. H- here's the thing that you only really know when you're a bit older um, and um, the the passion of youth has been replaced a little bit with the pragmatism of reality. Um, renewable energies are significantly more ex- expensive than carbon fuel. You know, I think I'm right in saying that even today, the cheapest f- uh, source of energy is still uh, coking coal, um, which everybody hates. Um, so I-, I ask myself, you know, on one side you've got, rightly so, everybody worried about fossil fuels, the climate, um, green energy, they must get rid of the, you know, the carbon fr- footprint. But at the same time, we're going to go into a winter where the cost of people's energy bills are going to go through the roof. And this comes back to my point about principles are extremely expensive. Because I I believe that as those bills start to bite, people will start, let's say, walking back a little bit some of their principles. One of the principles I find strange and I have for a long time is the idea that nuclear energy is a bad idea. I think I'm not going to make the case for it here. Others can do that better than me, but it is very cheap and it doesn't have the effects of carbon that um, that, that, that some of the other ones have. So I just see sport now, you know, having a go at n- no energy, no energy companies, no mining companies, no betting companies, nobody associated with China. Uh, and, 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 you know, I'm thinking, wh- what do you think is going to happen here? Because as you say, Giles, the main revenue stream subscription uh, subscriptions to sports channels is going to be under threat. You made the great point about Comcast and Sky. And I think they've lost so many subscribers. Uh, the stats were all out last. Sponsorship probably is the second line item on, on your p account. And if we're going to get awful picky, I would just ask people to realise that principles are very expensive and you can't do it half in, half out because then you get into this horrendous muddle. And, and, and you know, I'm not sure that it's... Be careful what you wish for, I think is what I'm saying. And, and, and you know, uh, I hope people that have got more experience than zealous young kids who have got a different view of life I think I hope measured heads win the day.
1: Well, we had there was another example a couple of weeks ago, which you will have picked up. And British Cycling um, picked up Shell um, as a as a sponsor, and that's close to my heart because uh, HSBC was title sponsor of British Cycling, a a deal I did um, way back when, um, which HSBC came out of, and Shell have come in not at a title level, but a significant amount of money, and there was a Ferrari. In the uh, London media um, that we are that is so beloved by you and I, Roger, in the sports industry about how could this, how could how could this happen? I know what and, you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I thought to myself, well, energy companies still have to be energy companies. Yes, I know that the the taxes and their Shell and BP and all the rest of it are making colossal amounts of money right now, uh, and that, that there is a baying for windfall taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I don't see those same people who are um, whining and whinging when they go and fill up their car, their four by fours, that they're not they're not vetoing the the shell the, the, the petrol companies. There is still a need, and I think people tend to they get their virtue signalling a bit wrong on all of this. You pick and, and
2: choose, and they pick it's and like choose. It's like Catholicism. You you pick the bits that you're prepared to go along with, and you reject the ones that are a bit too hard. You know? Yeah. And and I just feel, you know, but, but I will say in defense
1: of the, the liberal brigade, which is really the illiberal brigade, let's be fair. The one thing it might do, because you and I have been talking about this for, for three or four years, um, is that the sports industry model has changed, is changing, and will continue to change. Television is going to be different. Sponsorship is going to be different. And the direct-to-consumer know your fan. Here I go again. If you can get a direct-to-consumer business going, which is about um, attracting your fans, your very passionate fans, into a digital engagement that you, the rights holder, own, you can make money from your fans who will willingly and happily pay, whether it's in a micropayment way, across digital experience. So this reliance on sponsorship monies, handouts effectively, this reliance on media um, handouts again from large television companies which are coming under threat, ticketing again through difficult, difficult times, you need to watch that uh, p and And merchandise, there's only so many baseball caps people can buy in a certain year. So what is it you've got left? And this would be my absolute sort of beseeching request to those that listen is get your digital house in order. You and I work with a lot of fantastic companies in this space who are there to help rights holders secure new revenue streams. So when these companies come to you, rights holder people, don't just push them away because you're wearing the blazer and you think that you've got all the power because the power is changing and you need to allow these other companies to come in and help you monetize and help you engage with the fans who put you in your job in the first place. And that would be my, the one good thing about this is that this these challenges that are happening within the commercial model hopefully will be the alarm call that the, 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 the sports industry needs to hear because still it's taking too long.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I just was thinking when you were saying that, and coming back to what you were saying about Spurs and the insurance company in China, and and we've mentioned this two or three times, you know, as um, it's, it, it's, you know, it's one of my hobby horses. I think if you are going to take a moral stand on something, you have to go all in and you can't pick and choose. And I saw LeBron, you know, LeBron was talking about, you know, Musk taking over Twitter and, you know, within 24 hours, the use of the N-word on Twitter had gone through the roof and he was giving all, you know, all, everything. I had nothing to say against what he was talking about. Uh, I, I, you know, people know my views on, on Musk. so um, uh, But the point is this. Other people remember LeBron having a go at that um, GM who had the temerity to talk about China and China's problems. And you've just raised China's problems. So, you know, we've got a lot of people having a go at the sponsor of Tottenham Hotspur because they have got links to China and LeBron, who is one of the prime virtue signalers in the world these days, having no issue whatsoever. It's picking and choosing. And, you know, I think that it will continue in sport to be one of the biggest issues as money gets tighter. Um I I think we're only at the start of it now seeing what we feel is acceptable and not acceptable. And, you know, can a boxing match take place in Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia can't buy uh, Newcastle United. All all of these things, I, I prefer not to try and be smart and say, yes, but this one's okay to comment. And that one's fine because you'll get yourself into a terrible mess. And then the last point I would say about how I'm viewing this moment in time, which, you know, grants um, amongst the three of us has been the one flagging that this would happen. You know, the cost of capital would go up, money would get tighter, things would get cut, and then the whole thing may unravel. You know, um, I just think in general in life in the last 15 years, our masters and central governments and central banks have allowed us to believe that there is a backstop of what we used to call taxpayers' money, but now is basically just the printing press. You know, we don't want this. We want to be fully paid. We want equal pay here. Uh, and then somebody says, well, who's going to pay for all this? And somebody says, well, the government, you know? Um, and, and, and I think... The backstop of the government running up massive debts all over the world, from Japan to, to America, to the UK, to the EU, um, to allow us to all feel that we can have everything in life, all our morals, uh, uh, all our standard of living, all our growth, without having to put in our hand in our pocket for increased taxes, which was the old way of doing it, I think those years are coming to an end. And I think it is going to be one hell of a shock when people realise that the government isn't necessarily going to be there with some kind of like ephemeral checkbook that will always be able to pick up the tab we're going to get back to the old days and i know this is going to sound like a karen or something like that the old days when a grandmother uh, was in charge of the family finances and knew what was coming in every every week and knew what was going out and a man paid his paycheck to that woman and she looked after the finances of a house we've forgotten all about that now instant gratification you pay everything on debt and um, i believe those times are coming back you buy things that you can afford to pay for and if you can't you have to make some nasty choices where as i said at the start you'll realize principles are very very expensive
1: yeah and i think what you've just said is really a, a an economics masterclass. And it's also cyclical, isn't it? If you look back in human history. Totally cyclical. Y- that you will get these the, these moments. And we're, uh, we're approaching a time of, of a, probably a global austerity based on what you're saying. And you're right. In the our grandparents' generation, if you wanted something, you saved up for it. And when you, when you could afford it, you bought it. You didn't buy it and then figure out how to pay for it and put yourself in more debt. That's what happened in the global financial crisis back in 2008-9, and it's happening again. And I, I, unfortunately, I agree with you that um, the good times are probably, uh, are probably not over, but it's certainly going to be tightening the belt, which, um, given my wedding coming up, is maybe not a bad thing.
2: <laughs> I'll just end with a couple of extra points on this before we get on to um, talking about... Well, it's linked a little bit to two things that have... Um, really driven really driven sport and in recent years has been the uh, introduction of private equity, who uh, um, have based the deals that they have done on two things. You raised one of them earlier. The understanding, almost without question, that TV broadcast rights for sport would always go up. Um, I think when you see Sky losing those subscribers and trying to offload Sky Germany, I think there are clear flags there that that might not be a good thesis on which to build your um, forecasting for uh, invoice factoring, which is a lot of what they've done. The second thing is PE works on structured leverage, i.e. the use of debt. And when that becomes more difficult, more expensive, a lot of deals at the margins certainly no longer become economical and and we're going right into that now i'm certain there's a lot of deals that were looked at you know and kind of like um rah rah uh, uh a year ago whether it was around a SPAC, whether it was around a really you know here's a big injection of money into sport a or sport b i think those deals if you looked at them now and you could you know replay it a lot of these deals would not get done now um so, uh, I I I think we're getting into a world where, as I said this before, it's the era of the nasty CFO guy that says, who's paying for all this? I don't think this stacks up.
1: Yeah, well, you heard it here first and um, you hear it from Roger and from Grant a lot. And it's, um, I think everything that's been telegraphed over the last two or three years is beginning to, to happen and... Um, We'll be continuing to, to to monitor this this industry of ours in the uh, in the months and years to come. Um, I'm going to introduce our next guest. Yes, Raj, please do. It. As, Sorry, you, as, but... as you say, it's it's related because it's uh, one of the things that we want to focus on is what we're calling racket sports, which covers obviously tennis, uh, padel, pickle, uh, pickleball. Should I say pickle? Um, badminton. I guess even table tennis. Um, yep. These sports which are going through something of, of, of radical change, or some of them are. And our guest this week, I think, is very well qualified to talk about a couple of them. He's a veteran sports correspondent with one of the most, well, well probably the biggest um, British English-speaking media titles in the world, the Daily Mail. He's been there as a sports correspondent for many, many years, and is a very, very well-respected correspondent. His name is Mike Dixon. And he is currently the tennis correspondent for the Daily Mail, but has been also the cricket correspondent, as well as covering over four Olympic Games. He's what you'd call an old school journalist. He's trained in local media, in general news, and has worked his way up through the ranks to become one of the most respected voices in sports journalism. He's also a writer. He's uh, been the um, autobiographer for England cricket captain Michael Vaughan and for the late Bob Willis, one of the great fast bowlers of, of Warwickshire in England and one of my heroes particularly yep. is as Bob Willis put uh, Dylan um put by deed into his middle name to uh, honor his greatest musical hero which I just love and Mike's most recent uh, publication which is about to come out is charting the rise and maybe not the fall but certainly the rise of Emma Radicano and her astonishing uh, win at the US Open in 2021. So I can't wait to hear what he's got to say. He is a defender of tennis because he writes about tennis, but he's also one of its fiercest critics about what tennis needs to do in the future. And it gives me huge, huge privilege to welcome Mike Dixon to the show. Mike, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained. Lovely, lovely to have you on the show. Uh, Well, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm 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 intrigued. You're you're in Paris. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. The world of of tennis is, is always a busy calendar. You spend a lot of time traveling all over the world. What's the event that you're you're covering right now?
0: Uh, well, it's basically the uh, final sort of regular tour event of the uh, men's season. It's a slightly unusual one because for the first time, actually, in about thirty-three years of these events, uh, four four British. Men have actually qualified for the main draw without needing to go through the preliminaries, uh, or with the help of a wild card. Um, plus, Djokovic and Nadal here, and it's it's only a sort of couple of hours over on the
1: train. So I thought it was worth coming over for a few days. Well, my, I'm I'm fascinated. You've been a ter- tennis correspondent, a sports correspondent for many years, but you've you've covered um, particularly the the extraordinary. Um, 15 20 years of the dominance of of three players maybe four right. but certainly three players as you sit here today and you there there's a couple of the of 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 those still playing are you nervous are you sad at the at the passing of well certainly Roger in terms of his own career are you does it make you feel melancholic a bit? Does it make you feel emotional at all? I know you're a hard-hitting journalist and you've been brought up in the hard school of journalism, but you've you've had an extraordinary armchair ride in terms of watching some of the greatest athletes ever playing any sport. How does it feel as you come to the end of the season in 2020, 2022?
0: Well, unlike some people, I wasn't in floods of tears at the O2 Arena the other day or the other week or uh, last <laughs> month, was it? Um which was when it all came to um, to an end for, for Roger amid, amidst that deluge of emotion. Um, but there's, there's no doubt. I mean, it, it, there's a slight, I suppose, um, I mean, perhaps it's the time of the year, but it's a slight autumnal feel in the air, possibly, because, um, it, it, I mean, the one opponent you're never going to beat is Father Time. And um, it's game set and match to him against Roger. And quite soon, it's going to be uh, the same with, um, as you correctly say, this amazing um, raft of players. We've already seen Serena Williams go. Um, Nadal is, is 36. Uh, Djokovic, 35. Andy Murray, 35. Stan Varenko, who probably gets left out of the conversation a bit more than he should have done. He's 37. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, there's a feeling of transition around and that's obviously going to bring its challenges with it for the sport as a whole.
2: Mike, can I ask you, uh, and we'll get into a whole lot of other stuff, I really want to ask about Emma as well. but well, as, you, as you're there in Paris uh, on a Monday, um, who is it that you're seeing with your eyes turning up to watch this tournament in the stadium? What is the demographic? Well, it's pretty good. I mean, tennis is
0: extreme, although they're not actually doing particularly well Uh, as a nation at tennis uh, by their relatively high standards at the moment. Tennis is a huge sport in France. And I have to say that that, uh, when I arrived here at 11 o'clock this morning, um, there was uh, long queues to get in, even on a Monday morning in November. Uh, This is a very popular event. Been on the calendar a long time. That helps. Um, But to answer your question, I I, I think from tennis's point of view, it was relatively... um, you know, relatively young crowd, quite a few families. I mean, it wasn't, sometimes in England, you know, you do look at the demographic and you think, you know, this is, you know, a bit Eastbourne sort of thing. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that was the case here. It does, it does kind of vary from nation to nation, but at this particular event, it was pretty healthy.
1: Mike, we um, had Steve Kuhn, who's uh, the founder of um, Major League Pickleball on the show last week. And he his, his sort of uh, thesis for the growth of pickleball will be participation. Participation that comes through, that's sweeping through the USA, that pickleball is an easy game to, to, to play and to pick up. And therefore, in time, he he believes that pickleball will unearth some huge champions who will become national heroes in the States. But I think that's going to take a couple of generations. So as you look at it in, in, in France, are you saying that the fans you're seeing, do you think they are, players of tennis and therefore it's a very very well supported sport because it's played a lot more than say in other countries where maybe in the UK I don't see participation growing the LTA may disagree with me I don't know what the figures are but do you think that the French do have an affinity both because they had some great great players Ori Leconte and Yannick Noah and people like that back, back in time but also it's just played more and that therefore creates a, a sense of interest
0: well I've observed in France so over the years um, that there is, a, you know, it, it really is a very big sport in this country and they did a great job around the 80s and 90s of building facilities. Uh, they've got a fantastic booking system, a very kind of inclusive game if you use that phrase, and There's definitely, I mean, it's it's still a very popular sport. They don't actually at the moment have any great heroes and they're actually going through a transition with a lot of uh, their players in their mid-30s who are a very strong generation retiring. That doesn't seem to be having an effect here. Um, I agree with you about the UK. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that COVID had quite a a lot to do with this um, and there's no doubt that, rather like golf clubs, certainly in the UK and I'm sure in some other countries. uh, COVID was actually a pretty good thing um, for participation in tennis. Um, Certainly grassroots clubs, you know, were closing their waiting lists and things like that. The question is, I guess, whether that will be a long-term thing. I I would imagine they'll be losing some of those players, possibly as golf clubs might be doing, um, because those, those two sports were very quick to come back after COVID and they were... Um, i suppose relatively covid friendly uh in, in that sense but yeah france in particular um as i say going back 30 40 years they've done a very good job of promoting the sport here but that it is different nation to nation and it would be a different picture probably in in um, australia or, or america for example
2: so so mike when, when you look at what is um what tennis is represented certainly in in the UK and and, and in America as well. Uh, Do you think in uh, 10, 15 years' time, there'll be a guy like you still being sent uh, to cover tournaments of tennis uh, as opposed to uh, whether it's paddle or whether it's pickleball or whether it's some other sport? Uh, Is this autumn that you refer to cyclical or secular? Because I think people know that I believe it's it's secular.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a very good question. I mean part of that, it should be said, has to do with the economics of the media business. And
2: uh yes. You know, yes. You know, it's, it's,
0: yeah, that's not great at the moment, as as we all know. And um, you know, I because our, our business has become so atomized, there are so many different sources of news now. And you know, sending people like myself is it's it's not particularly cheap. And I've actually observed that the numbers of the uh, the sort of what you might call traditional journalists, independent journalists, if you like, um, they are probably down. It's, um, it, you know, it's becoming more and more uh, expensive. Now, how much that is also to do with the fact that tennis is on the slide, I don't think that's the case actually in the UK. I mean, I think it's been probably the most newsworthy 18 months in some ways for tennis that I can ever remember. That's been a number of factors. There have been some big stories. And of course the whole Emma Raducanu thing um, has been very helpful uh, in that regard. But if we are throwing it forward, um, you know, 10 or 15 years, as you say, um, I do think that possibly it will have widened out, taken in, certainly in, in Europe, uh, Padel. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I look at Padel and it's almost sort of, like you're on the platform of an underground and you look down the tunnel, you can see the lights coming in the distance. Um, I mean, to extend that analogy, I'm not quite sure how many carriages there will be on the train, but it's definitely coming. I'm convinced of that. And I've actually made it my business in the last probably three or four months to become much more up to speed with the world of Padel. You know, partly for that reason, because I do think, and I'm talking sort of, Britain
2: Eurocentrically here. Um yeah, you know, I, I do see it as a coming force. And you know, like if you were if you were sitting there, and this is something I've I've not never been close to, I have in other sports, but not in tennis. If you were sitting there at the All England Club or the LT or whatever it's called, um and you were thinking about a strategy what would what would the, the two or three things you think they're currently doing that are mistaken, and the two or three things that they're not doing that you would do in your first 100 days?
0: Ooh, put me on the spot there. I mean, I, I suppose ge- in general terms, I feel that the game does have to modernise its offering, um, and it also has to modernise its governments. That, um, I don't want to send your listeners to sleep with sort of details of the ins and outs of tennis politics. But um, there are big issues there. And I don't don't know if you've touched on this before in shows, but it's pretty fractured the governance of tennis and a lot of the problems actually come back to these rather complex um, structural things with how the games uh, is run. I mean, something that I think definitely needs to happen um, is this whole speeding up of the game and you know making sure that there's a bit more bang for the buck in terms of the ball being play and less dead time. I think that's very important in the sort of year late 2022 coming up to 23. I think there's far too much dead time, um, particularly for broadcasters. And they, they really are a bit asleep of the wheel on this. Um, they could do um much more to speed things up and possibly increase the jeopardy. Uh, early in sets as well. I mean, I, I've been an advocate for possibly having tie, tie breaks at 5-all, for example. Um, tie breaks are always dramatic and exciting, the crowd like them. Um, and it would slightly change this sort of sense at the start of a set that the match isn't really progressing. There's lots of things that you could do, the things possibly maximising the amount of juices allowed, definitely reducing time between points, Um I mean, I'll give you an example. I was at the US Open this year and watching Dan Evans, um, British player, playing Marin Cilic. Um, And Marin is not, not particularly having a go at him. He's a nice bloke, actually. But he was bouncing the ball 19 times sometimes before serving. And then he'd serve it into the net and then he'd start all over again. And... You were just looking at it. I mean, when the point when the ball was actually in play, the tennis was terrific, and and I think generally the modern game is a good spectacle when they are actually hitting the ball back and forth at each other. Um, that's not really where the problem lies. But you were sitting there thinking, my goodness, you know, the two pe- two sort of categories of people who would be really into this were either diehard fans or gamblers, probably because really the amount of dead time. Between every point was was quite ridiculous at one point, and the the, um, the umpires are a bit lenient about it.
1: Mike, do you think that golf and tennis, um, in a sense, they have suffered because of this governance, because of the history of both sports, how they were set up, that the strength of well, firstly the, the the British and then the Americans and building out a global game, so sort of separated by the Atlantic Ocean, all quite antiquated with um, governance that is of a, really of another era. And then to have, as both sports do, have four amazing Grand Slam slash majors within their calendar, which carry all. They're bigger than the sport in a sense is that they're social occasions, they, they shine a light on the country where they where they take place. And so it's always been my, my theory that British tennis has, one, been hugely benefited by the huge strength of the All England Championship at Wimbledon, but also seriously handicapped because... Um, it becomes a sort of an easy crutch, and therefore the fear factor that other sports may have to say we've got to adapt or um, be replaced doesn't necessarily ha- hasn't really factored. And we've seen it in golf. You know, we've we've charted the um, the rise of live and whatever that becomes. And it, it, this is um, uh, sort of a work in progress, I guess. But you feel it's only a matter of time before something similar could happen with tennis.
0: Uh, I I think, yes, I I think you're on the right lines there. I mean, with Britain specifically, as you're probably familiar with, there's this slightly dysfunctional relationship between Wimbledon and the rest of British tennis in that Wimbledon makes all the money and then hands it over lock, stock and barrel to the LTA and sort of tells them to get on with it because uh, possibly Wimbledon, you know, doesn't want to be tarnished with some of the problems that there have been in British tennis, although I think there is probably a gradual improvement going on there. Um, And and across sports, yeah, I do. I mean, I think all the what we might call the established traditional ball sports, other than football, they all have similar challenges um, along those lines. And if you were starting again with a blank sheet of paper, you would probably have come up with a different structure and a different Um, way of governance, but we we are where we are um, with the loss of them. Tennis, arguably, uh, and I think possibly Roger thinks this as well, is, you know, it certainly has as many challenges as any of those sports. Um, I think there's some quite significant challenges coming up for tennis, actually. You'd like to, you know, start afresh all over again in some ways. Um, There again, I do think that... I actually think the tennis calendar is not bad because it does have a narrative going throughout the year. Um, you, know, you have the Australian open kicking it all off in January. And then that goes through the European summer into the U S open. And then you have the year end championships. So I think that's a narrative that people can follow uh, quite well, but there are other areas of concern. I mean, I think golf, for example, is hurt uh, by the fact that the majors are so squeezed together, you know, that. Masters starting in early April and the uh, the Open is the last major of the year in mid-July. Um, that, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. But again, you, you, it's very hard just to rip it up and start again.
2: Yeah, and of course, you're right. That is the big theme. Uh, you know, we wouldn't start here, would we, if we were starting again? But we are where we are, that wonderful English phrase. So what happens? Does... Our current governors, do they, you know, find uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, and and address some of the issues? You very correctly said there about you know, it's just not quick enough for the modern generation. You know, um, these wonderful new platforms. Whether it's Instagram Reels or TikTok, they just do a magnificent job with their algorithm of throwing things that you like. So I'm finding myself seeing a huge amount of the best of Roger Federer rallies over the last X years, and I'm just loving it. And and you know, like, and I think to myself, I can do that. Serve to me beautifully uh, with an algorithm that knows exactly what I like, or I can. Tuck myself in for four and a half hours at Roland Garros to see, you know, uh, not enough ball hitting and too much, as you said, 19 bouncings of the ball. I'm not sure our current governors, because they are not of that younger generation, realise what I think is an existential threat of the product just not being right for modern entertainment content. That's my biggest issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've sort of brought this up a bit on, on social media. And quite often when you bring this to the attention of people in tennis, the first the sort of default reaction is to deny there's a problem at all. Uh, and that's clearly clearly wrong and un- unhelpful. There are actually signs in tennis that, uh, that there's greater cooperation and recognition of the, the, the coming issues. Um, only today, actually, there was a statement of cooperation over the Davis Cup, which is a great historic competition Uh, between the various bodies it should have happened several years quite a few years ago actually but they seem to have finally sort of woken up uh to that thing I mean I I I guess what you're alluding to is the issue facing a lot of sports which is trying to replenish the audience there's no doubt the the tennis audience and the audience for quite a few sports cricket and golf certainly is an aging one and and how do you get um you know how do you get the, the the younger new generation involved in the same way um that's that's you know it's it's going to be very challenging i would say that i'm i'm old enough to remember um 90 i think it was about 1994 95 when sports illustrated which as you know was, was then very much the bible of world sport pretty much or certainly american sport they actually ran a front cover um quite famously within tennis, which just said in large letters, is tennis dying? And this was about 94, 95, I think. And that ruffled an awful lot of feathers. Um, we now know that the answer to that conclusively was no, um, it wasn't dying, but you know, that was 25, 30 years ago. And it, we're living in a very different world now. As you rightly say, there are so many ways to consume uh, a, a sport. I, I guess the the magic trick is going to be trying to find a way that you you uh, maintain the existing audience while bringing new ones in.
1: When you look at the Wimbledon audience and and you've been I don't know how many Wimbledon's you've you've covered, but it's going to be a lot. um do you see a change in the demographic? Do you ch- obviously it's difficult to get tickets to Wimbledon because of its sheer success and and volume. Um, I know that when in in sort of british surveys and marketing they they ask people to talk about their favorite sports and tennis always does very very well but I would i would replace tennis with Wimbledon to get the true accuracy of of that particular question I don't know if tennis has the wholehearted support uh, in the UK but I just wonder you know we, we're tough on tennis because of governance because of the speed of game because consumption because it it's also a very difficult game. Are you, particularly as you reference that Sports Illustrated article, do you think that tennis can turn things around? Do you think there are the right people um, at the top of the game to do so?
0: Um, I'm I'm not 100% confident uh, of that, I'd, I'd have to say. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of people in tennis who are clearly discomforted, I think, already by the... The rise of Pickleball and, and Padel, um, who kind of see it as a threat that they'd rather wish away. Um, but they're clearly, they're not going away, particularly Pickleball in the US and, and Padel in Europe. I mean, I, I kind of look at it in a slightly different way in that I think that actually the rise of these kind of challenger sports, if you like, I mean, apart from the the, the challenge of there's so many entertainment options now, general in general, um, beyond sport, open to people. But I think particularly if we talk about tennis, I think possibly that the the growth of padel and pickleball will actually focus minds on improving uh, the offering. Hopefully, uh, that the sport um, makes. I mean, you make a good point about. Tennis being a difficult sport to play, I mean, that is a problem I think possibly you see in golf as well. Um, I mean, just the serve in tennis puts a lot of people off. It's actually a very difficult thing to do, to serve in tennis. In Padel, it's dead easy. That's one of the big, you know, things that I think is going to help propel the, the growth of Padel and p- Pickleball likewise. Um, why? I mean, I'm not quite sure how you solve that with tennis. Um it takes a lot of learning, and you do sort of wonder if people in the age that we live in, you know, have the inclination or the application to learn what is really quite a difficult skill.
1: Yeah, and you know, I I have a I do have a theory. When we had Steve Kuhn on uh, last last week talking about pickleball, the advantage that I think no no pun intended that tennis does have that it needs to really really push on is that padel and pickleball have to be played by Uh, For people, and and that makes it as a participation game, brilliant fun, easy to play, easy to serve, and it's easy to be bad at. It's very tennis is a really crap game if you're not very good at it because you just basically spend most of your time picking the ball up at the back net, wishing that you could be better. The great thing about tennis that I think they have to, to to really push on in terms of marketing and promotion is that, yes, I know there's doubles and mixed doubles and that's all fine, but no one really remembers the great double players in tennis. They do remember the great gladi- gladiators, gladiators, whether it be Navratilova, whether it be Graf, whether it be Borg, McEnroe, Roger, Federer, whomever. And the fact it is difficult and is singular and is man-on-man, woman-on-woman just fighting to the death. It's sword fighting for for the modern times. And that's the bit that I think needs to be, and that it is balletic if you're Federer. And also the fact it is bloody difficult, I think is an advantage. I think there is something, any of us who've played golf at any level, and I know all of us have, and probably all of us wish we were better. If you then go and watch a proper golfer playing properly, it's an extraordinary art, and that the art of tennis is something that I think needs to be to be really worked on. And we, that, as as Roger said, you only need to look at the show reels of of twenty five year or twenty year Roger Federer career. You, you get it, and I think that has to be a play for 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 the advancement of the game and hurrying up.
0: Uh, well, there is that, and also there is something slightly more abstract uh, than that, which I think is a sort of underrated issue. Is there does seem to be a tendency particularly amongst the men to be sort of over matey with each other um i mean you you see with with nick Kyrgios and how you know he generates eyeballs at every, every level i mean people are just transfixed you can't take your eyes off him you know he's brilliant he's controversial i mean i'm not condoning some of his excesses i doubt he even condones uh, some of his excesses actually um but you know that when you get, uh, as you say, the gladiatorial aspect, uh, particularly when there's some kind of personal edge to it, it is extremely compelling. And I do think a problem of tennis, I'm not quite sure how you sort this out, but there's a bit too much of them coming off afterwards saying, oh, it was a privilege to share the court with you or <laughs> an, an honour to play Roger Federer or that kind of Amen. stuff. We're at, Amen. You know, it's actually, you know, you're taking the food off my table Absolutely, you know, I, w- I want to beat you up, and, and there's a bit of a cultural thing in men's tennis for some reason,
2: where they all seem to be want to be kind of some, you know, matey boys club. And I, I, but, but Mike, can I can I can I take that and I, I really love this and and bring it into the work you've done on Emma, and I, I'm not I'm not uh, singling her out. Uh, um, I, I, as you say, I think it is a little bit of a generational thing. That um, would it be fair? for us of our uh, middle-aged demographic to suggest that these younger kids are much more social. They seem to have much more, many more issues around feeling good about themselves and good with themselves, rather than wanting to rip the guts out of the person that's on the other side of the court. I'm thinking about Osaka. Um, and feel free to comment on whether Emma has had issues because of injuries or because she's part of that generation as well. How do you see that? Are we just a lot of old folks that just misunderstand what's going on in the world now?
0: Well, I suppose if if you're of a a certain age, you can remember sort of the golden days of McEnroe and Connors, um, you know, really despising each other, or McEnroe and Lendl, um, no love lost there. Uh, and there's no doubt that was extremely compelling I mean I think it's a societal thing you're, you're right um that generally you know younger younger people uh, possibly that they're not quite as into tearing each other's throats out as, as as perhaps was was the case back in the day and of course in a lot of these sports now particularly at the top of tennis or golf say um there's enormous amounts of money sloshing around they're all very rich and perhaps that takes, that takes a bit of uh, a bit a bit of edge off them. I'm not sure that's a, that's actually a specific issue um, with Emma. I think she's a, a pretty determined, single-minded young woman. I think there are other reasons why she's she's struggled post US Open.
1: Well, let's talk about that. I know that there's a there's a book coming up. You were one of the, the 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 few that was privileged enough to see her live and be part of that extraordinary 21 victory in New York as a tennis correspondent. Just Give our our listeners a view of where did she come from? Was what she did astonishing? And what's it look like going forward for her, given the amount of pressure that the media put on her, the amount of, obviously, British, huge celebration when she won. It was an amazing story uh just some, some of your personal views would be for us I think would be fascinating because you do know her and you've watched this story really unfold over the last two or three years.
0: Yeah well I think I think the, the people who are sort of plugged into British tennis, and that's not a very large number of people, uh, you know, she was on the radar. I mean I remember being told sort of three or four years ago by a couple of people whose judgment I respect, you know, you really got to keep an eye out for this Emma Raducanu, she's going to be very good. But, of course, I wouldn't claim, and nobody else could claim with a straight face, that they thought that she would be winning the US Open, you know, effectively four months after she finished her A-levels. It w- it was something really incomparable with anything uh, in modern sport. It was an extraordinary thing. But she w- she was it wasn't like she was a total bolt from the blue where she first broke through at Wimbledon. Remember? That's when she, most people started to hear about her um I I think people who are plugged in knew she was very good and then you know obviously she goes and does this utterly extraordinary thing at the US Open where the stars align somewhat um and and there's no playbook for someone who (laughs) comes from you know the classroom pretty much uh albeit in COVID times wins the US Open um, and then this opposite absolute avalanche of of attention. um I, I think I think the tennis media have actually made a fair amount of allowances for the fact because I think people who with some knowledge never expected her to kick straight on from the u s. Open. and I mean, it's almost like she missed about five massive de- 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 developmental steps um to do what she did. And there was always going to be an element of catch-up. That isn't to say that mistakes haven't been made uh, in the way that she's handled her career. But um, if, if say, she lost in the second round of the US Open, uh, which no one would have batted too much of an eyelid at, I think um, you'd say that she was sort of making OK progress. But, uh, I mean, clearly there's been a lot of noise around her, some of it self-created, um, with... You know, not parting with all these coaches, um, and she's also had these, this sort of repeat, repetitive cycle of inju- sort of small injuries as her body kind of struggles to catch up. I think, by the way, I, I think she—I'm a believer in Emma Raducanu's oh, long-term too. potential. I mean, me too. she's she is very talented. I mean, you don't do what she did without being very talented, and she's got. Great technique. She's a good athlete. I think she's got a good head on her shoulders, actually. Um, so I think she will come again.
1: Um, and I, I think. I actually, was going to ask Mike, because I, I wondered, you know, in music parlance, is she Jonah Louie? Is she a one hit wonder? Or is this, is she someone who's going to have more than one she'll Christmas? She'll, so that's your belief.
0: Um, I don't think she's Jonah Louie. I, I don't think she's Paul McCartney either, um, probably. Um... But I, I think she could do pretty well at Wimbledon. Actually, uh, in the future, I think that'll suit her quite well. But it's going to be quite a long process, and quite a lot's going to have to go right, and she's going to have to learn from a, a few of the mistakes she's made.
2: Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a big fan of hers. When she did win the U.S. Open, like you, uh, our podcast was was saying quite openly. Look, I think she'll probably have a little bit of a setback here. Um, We didn't like the fact that already the commercial boys and girls were, you know, covering her with um, uh, contracts and everything like that. I I just think, uh, Mike, I just think she's perfect for 2022, her racial background. She's also got a strong belief around Christianity, the way she looks. She's British, but she isn't. And and, and then she is in a a double way. Um, I, I think she's magnificent. And, you know... If I am bearish on tennis, I actually think she is one of the big, big hopes. Because if she gets anywhere reasonable, then she's just going to be a magnet for a young generation. Mainly girls, but not only. Yeah, the, the wider context
0: of it is that, you know, for in, in the 80s, 90s, perhaps there were this tiny number of dominant players, this amazing rivalry between Everton and over example and actually women's tennis has gone completely the opposite way um, possibly to its detriment really in in that it's been difficult to build up rivalries it's become much less uh, predictable in some ways that makes it more interesting but there's no doubt there is a bit of a lack of sort of sustainable uh, star power at the moment at the top of the women's game and you're probably going to see something slightly similar uh, develop on the men's side, although, uh, I think the young Spanish player, uh, Alcaraz, um, you know, he does appear to be a sort of potentially a generational talent.
1: Mike, switching sports, um, you've also been a cricket correspondent of, of great note as well. And you've probably, as a fan of cricket, just watched the explosion of the game through, through IPL over the last few years as well. You've also written, um, books in your, in your career. And I, I note that you, uh, uh, wrote the autobiography of Michael Vaughan, who is undoubtedly one of the most charismatic and successful of the English cricket captains. I wonder when the the, the whole brouhaha um, about Yorkshire and racism and him him sort of getting caught up in all of that. Um, what your views were on that, and do you think that's all calmed down? Do you think that? I mean, Michael's been on this show. Actually, he's been on the captain's table before, superb and, guest. and a superb guest, and and someone I have a, a lot of time for. Do you? Th- what were your views on that? As someone who is not involved in the the game, as it you know, as a professional writer at that particular moment, what were your thoughts?
0: Well, I have to say that uh, you're right. I mean, I'm I'm not close to what is clearly an extremely uh, complicated story. One thing I can say is that I do remember. In the uh, ghosting of that book, um, Michael saying something along the lines. And I think this got quite a lot of publicity. I think Piers Morgan tweeted it or something about you know how he thought it was a good thing that uh, there were Yorkshire Asians breaking through into the first team, and and certainly that's my memory of of what he said and what he felt at the time. This is going back um, uh, thirteen or so years I think when, when we when we did that book because it was at the end of his uh, his career so it was about 2009 I think um you yeah, know that certainly was my understanding of, of what he genuinely felt around that time but I I can't really comment on the ins and outs of Yorkshire in, in the terms of having any sort of inside track on it because uh, I'm just not
1: close enough to it at the moment. Do you have a desire to go back to cricket at any point? Do you miss the the cricket caravan? I'm sure you don't miss the long the long touring and doing sort of endless endless weeks away. But do, do you miss the sport? Are you excited by seeing where cricket's going?
0: Uh, well, I'm very interested in it still. I love it. You know, once you once you're kind of into a sport like that, you know, you don't uh, you don't lose that. You're right. I I definitely don't miss the. Uh, the long trips and, and I, I certainly didn't miss them when I stopped um, with three young children at the time. <laughs> that was, uh, that that was for sure. But I mean, you yeah, cricket's a, it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful game. I, I, I love it. And I've, I've actually sort of still been a bit involved because uh, one of my children has played, um, played quite a lot. Um, in fact, he was in the same school team as Ollie Pope actually for a few years. So it's, it's about what, what's what been great for me actually is watching some of the boys that. Um, one of my children grew up playing with now breaking into the England team and stuff that that's been uh quite special actually to to, to see that on, on a wider basis I think cricket you know like tennis like golf like rugby it's certainly got its uh its share of of challenges uh I was actually at the the, the meeting in Spain um or the, the sort of away weekend we had when T20 was was sort of invented well not invented as such but you know, when it was in the process of being packaged up as a thing, and you probably say in the, the recent history of sport, T Twenty has been, you know, across any sport has been amongst the most successful
1: repackaging of a game, hasn't it? I was at that that was at Ian McLaurin's bash at Valderrama, wasn't it? That is correct. Were well, you there? Know, I don't, I, just, I, was, no. I was there. I was there with Vodafone, who were sponsoring the England right, team at uh, the time, and I remember Twenty Twenty came out as one of the minutes of that kind of. That think yeah. tank of eighty people who had spent quite a quite a jovial evening at the bar after a, a fairly good round of golf. I think.
0: Yeah, well, that, that's why I can't remember much else about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it was a, it was quite a fun trip in that respect. I do remember uh, it was Stuart Robertson, wasn't it? The ECB, that's right. and he, we, we were all asked to write down possible names for this format of cricket. I mean, it wasn't a new format. Remember, I mean, I remember playing uh an evening league in the sort of late 80s playing uh, 20 overs a side cricket but then if you recall we were, i think we we're all asked to sort of come up with a name and i think half of us about 50 percent of people came up with t20 um yeah and um yeah you know, well the rest history isn't it and amazing how it started off the players not really taking it seriously and now and now it it completely dominates the whole sport
2: well, you know, Mike. Let's let's take that statement, and I'll make this the the sponsor question. Sports Digital help us to bring this podcast to everybody. So, their question is this: You know, if you look at T Twenty, and and our sports industry kind of like holds on to that as the poster child of evolution and new audiences and new formats and new demography, and oh, there is a future. But the reality is that. T20 uh, is going to the 100, is going to, I think Grant's got a version of it that even goes to 60 balls. It's going down the way to chase success and there's no doubt about it, it is dominating the traditional game. Uh, certainly, you know, county cricket and probably also test cricket. And I, I want to ask you, whilst it might not be the same sport, the concept's the same. I believe padel and, t- and pickleball are, will do to tennis what T twenty has done to cricket. And because it is different sports and there's no cross kind of like financing of all in the same family, I think they will suck a lot of dollars out of the sports tennis industry. Because that's how I that's the parallel I make. Um T twenty is pickleball and paddle. What do you think? Um well, first, I have to congratulate you
0: on your attempts um, on the recent edition when you spoke to Steve Kuhn to sort of get him to address the tennis thing, because I, I couldn't help noticing he was um, <laughs> extremely reluctant to get involved with any discussion on tennis, despite your best efforts. Um Because yes. actually, it is a slightly inflammatory issue over in America. A lot of tennis people are very sensitive about, about the growth of pickleball, and uh, he clearly doesn't want to to queer his pitch. Um, I th- I mean, I think already, yeah, probably padel in Europe, pick a ball in the States, is taking players from tennis. I mean, the, the one of the arguments, uh, and I think that the potential of padel is enormous, but, but clearly one of the arguments why the Lawn Tennis Association, for example, in common with a lot of national tennis federations, um, are keen can we say having Padel inside the tent peeing out than outside the tent peeing in um, is because the introduction of Padel at traditional tennis clubs can reinvigorate them. And we've seen that, I think, already we're starting to see a bit of evidence of that, certainly in the UK. I mean, in in places like Spain, Padel has already overtaken tennis in participation um, terms by quite a long way already. We're seeing it in, in, in Sweden. So there's a very interesting governance thing coming up uh, with, with Padell. And I think at the International, that, Ten- yeah. International Tennis Federation, AGM coming up, um, there are moves afoot, I think, to sort of even bring it more aligned with interesting. tennis. Um, I mean, that said with Padel. I went up to the European Championships for a day at Derby as part of my sort of mission to acquaint myself more on the inside track of the sport. And, I had a chat there with Jonas Bjorkman, um, the former um, Wimbledon doubles champion, and he was coaching the Swedish Padel team, and he's an investor in it. And he was saying, actually, that in in Sweden, supply has actually overshot demand now with Padel, and they're actually mothballing some courts there because they've had an explosion of interest, particularly during COVID, where loads of people turned to Padel. But, But they've kind of overshot the runway a bit, and they're now pulling back. Um, so I guess there is a limit, um, but, but governance-wise, it'll be very interesting to see see what happens. There's very little infrastructure around it in terms of um, anti-corruption, anti-doping. Um, there's very little con structure around it, and um, it'll be interesting to see how they manage to progress that, because at the moment it appears to be a bit of an impediment, and you're probably familiar with the slight sort of live golf situation they've got with the the, the Padel tours at the moment this
2: saw that it's really complicated to explain but. but let let me let me just finish this off with a more technical question in terms of cricket i would argue i may be wrong but uh, i think the introduction of t20 has significantly t- changed the technical fundamentals of the modern cricket player uh, i'm not sure you get the chris tavares or the jeffrey boycott's anymore um, and it is, um, so I'm I'm arguing against what I normally say sport needs to be, which is short and punchy and big emotion and everything like that. So my last question is, if we do see in whatever shape Pickleball and Padel influencing tenants because they're all going after the same dollar, um, will we see the needs technically of those sports Making it more difficult that we see the ballet of a Roger Federer on a, on a tennis court. Will that technique be lost as we chase the money that Padel and pickleball, you know, put in front of our nose?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, one thing I've observed having watched now a bit of some elite level Padel is is that the lob is a very important shot. I mean, whether that would have some kind of spin off effect into tennis. Um, I don't know. I mean, Jonas Bjorkman made the point that he thought tennis players transitioned probably quicker than squash players into Padel because they're used to taking the ball out of the air. Obviously, squash players are, are more skilled at playing off the walls, um, which is the a, a, a trade off. Um, it's, it's going to be very interesting seeing it, it go forward. But basically, I think what's happening, and I, I don't know if you would agree, is that sort of Padel and pickleball, they do seem to be offering the customer what they want. Um and you know, thereby you know hangs a threat, I suppose to tennis, which is a more t- you know more difficult technical game but to play.
2: isn't isn't that the absolute conclusion offering the customer what they want what is the obligation of media journalism television to actually help the customer learn things that they maybe don't know they want or do we just chase what? And and that takes you down into a tabloid journalism path. It takes you down to a snackable, quick, you know, path in sport. You you know where I'm going with this. Um, How much, uh, and again, I'm speaking for our colleague that's not here. This is what he would say. How much is it sports duty to try and hold off and maintain a, a level that is beyond the lowest common denominator?
0: Um. Well, I I think, I think I know what you're saying. I mean, you know, we shouldn't get too sort of po-faced and serious about sports. It's, it's not, um, we're not talking about, you know, pandemics or stuff like, you know, it's really important stuff in life. Um, but I I think actually kind of tennis has got, you know, most of the players behave pretty well. I don't really have it. If if that's what you're saying, uh, play, behave pretty well on that score. Um, and you know I mean I, I worry more say about footballers crowding around referees um that that that's the sort of um, stuff that would worry me uh, I think that's a bit more of a moral duty a moral perspective on it um I mean there are moral dilemmas in tennis I think one of them is the um the very touchy issue of, of you know what happens with the Russian and Belarusian players that's caused a lot of upset amongst the Ukrainian players um if one's talking about sort of rather more profound matters.
1: Well, Mike, I'm very aware that there's probably um, tennis that you've got to be reporting on behind you or yes, below yes. you or wherever you are in, yes. in in Paris. But also, I think that we'd love to keep um, you close in our sights because I think the next three or four years, um, the changes that are going to be happening in racket sports are going to be fascinating, which we'll be charting and getting your point of view will be, will be really, really interesting for for us because you you are a, a huge proponent of tennis. You've followed it, you've been around the game a lot. I'm very interested that you're keeping a weather eye on Padel because it is going to grow, but what its story and what the chart of of Paddle is going to be, particularly in the UK, is yet to be seen. So um, it just remains for, for me and for Rog and for all of the team at Are You Not Entering to thank you very, very much for taking time out of what I know is a really, really busy weekend in, in you, Paris. Uh, and um, please come back and see us because uh, we'll have loads more questions.
0: I'd love to do that. It'd be very interesting to see where we are in, uh, in a few years' time, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on.
2: Great pleasure, Thanks, Mike. Mike. Thank you. Well, J that was um, that was great. Uh, really, really enjoyed that. Very, very interesting man. I thought very balanced.
1: Well, it's there is no doubt at all that you look at these sports, and we've been talking about rugby, we've been talking about cricket, we've been talking about tennis, we've been talking about a number of sports that have got fundamental challenges and for me it's encouraging that a sports writer like mike who it would be just as easy for him to support the game and to be as blind as some of the um the yes. people who are there to 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 govern the sport because that's the gravy train that you're on he definitely takes a different point of view which is the sport which he loves, and he clearly loves tennis, and I I know he loves tennis, needs to galvanize itself and needs to really gird its loins. And I think this is a message that we've been talking about on the podcast is sometimes I think that you and I might get the odd, uh, I, I, I don't get sacks of mail, I have to be honest, but I do get the occasional email saying that, you know, one of us has maybe been a bit negative on something or another. Fundamentally, the role of Are You Not Entertained, as we, I see it, and I know you would, would concur, is that we're massive sports fans. This is always about sports and trying to help sport, particularly through what I think are gonna be challenging times because of the macroeconomics of the world, let alone the digital revolution and the, the change of consumption of young people. There is a perfect storm of change, and therefore we talk about Darwinism all the time, of adaptation. And tennis and the racket sports are are brilliant exemplars of that. So for me, brilliant and exciting to have Mike come on because it's a point of view that probably mirrors our own.
2: Yeah, first of all, we um, didn't mention it, uh, but the tennis community—they're doing their own drive to survive thing just now. And one of the the listeners to this show and a good friend of mine, Nick Bourne, is is in the middle of all of that. So uh, I can't wait to see how that pans out. I do still remain very bearish on tennis. Cricket, interestingly for me, Giles, is strange in the sense that I played cricket and then I watched it a great deal in my university years. It was what I thought was a perfect aid to be studying with um, five-day test cricket. Uh, And and of course, those were the years of of Botham and and Willis and Viv Richards and um, the amazing West Indian team and everything like that. And then I went to Italy and I completely missed the the whole move to short form cricket, T20, the 100, everything like that. And for some reason, cricket is the one sport that I am stubbornly digging my heels in. As sometimes you can maybe tell that I like it the way it was. I like the slow way that to do it properly. And, you know, I'm thinking, is that because I haven't been exposed to the new uh, versions of it? Um, other sports I'm I'm right in the middle of it and and that's affecting me you know so you're right Giles we are all the same and you know when I I have a go at you and certainly Grant about golf and not seeing the need to change in cricket it's a little bit like that for me so I can very much empathise with your point of view I just feel there's this massive boulder coming down the hill which is called demographic change and they just don't think that like us. They, they they were born post iPhone, they're, they're mobile first, they're digital. They're not going to wait for 19 bounces of a ball before a serve that then goes in the net and they do it again. They're not going to wait for that. And and I don't know what the answer is. I I, I just, uh, in some ways, look at all my colleagues like Nick Bourne at, at, at WTP, uh, like all the other people that are trying. And, and I think, you know, best of luck because this isn't an easy shift it really isn't
1: no it isn't because you're dealing with fundamental societal change and consumption change it's not just because it's not just a marketing exercise it's to get into the head of an audience today and and actually even harder an audience that doesn't yet know who it is for tomorrow and that's that's going to be the real challenge well, Rog, we better better get back to work. I think we've got to yes. uh, we, we we've got to uh, sweep some sweep some wickets yes. and things and I don't know squares and other metaphors that we use from time to time. So um, I'll see you next time. I'm really looking forward
2: to uh, our next guest, but I have no idea who it is. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, I do, but I'm not going to get you out of your embarrassment there. I'll let you. I'll, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you uh, next time. Apologise to the guests for forgetting. <laughs> um, Simon, is it is Simon. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so listen. Uh, anybody that is enjoying this, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at Are You Not Entertained? The the word are. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan at Giles Morgan seventy one. And you can follow me on Instagram at RPM Como, still RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Roger, I look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, James.